Well, Heavenly Father, what a, a good thing it is to sing together and remind ourselves that we have not been a forgotten people and that at our greatest point of need, you showed your greatest love and generosity in the form of that baby, the Lord Jesus, humbling himself, coming to earth to be our sin bearer. Father, thank you for your great sovereign plan of the ages, and thank you for our role and participation in being able to enjoy the forgiveness of sin and to enter into the righteousness of Christ because of this great plan. Father, thank you for this time together now as we open our Bibles, as we study the Word together. May your Holy Spirit have a a great freedom and a liberty in us to, to do your work and make application as is needed in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name alone that we gather, that we preach, and that we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder what you do for fun at Christmas time. It is a fun time, isn't it? I, I recall uh, a season in our lives that we enjoyed very much um, as uh, the time that I was the youth pastor at the Independent Bible Church in Martinsburg, and God in His goodness gave us a team of adults Uh, lay leaders to work alongside of us. And that group became just the closest of friends, and we enjoy those friendships even to today. And it was so fun to gather at Christmas time with our youth staff and have a party, and for fun, we would do white elephant gifts. You know what a white elephant gift is, right? And we do them for fun. And I remember one time we had the whole group over at our house, and all these white elephant gifts came in, and we exchanged gifts, lots of laughter, you know, and things. And I remember one of the gifts I kept, I thought it was pretty cool, um, it's called the Electric Potato Masher. It's new, it's different, would you believe, I don't know when this thing was put together, 1967 it says on the box, and uh, here's your electric potato masher, and it's a wooden handle with an electric cord coming out of it, and ha ha ha, fun, 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 but really not very practical, is it? I remember that um, that night when everyone left, we didn't even realize it. Um, but they had, uh, in a conspiratory way, gotten together, gathered up all their white elephant gifts, and without us realizing them, had piled them in our bathroom in the tub. And the next morning when we went to take a shower, there the, all the gifts were. Because they're meaningless, right? They're just for fun. And like this, like this potato masher, they're not, very, they're not very practical. They're just for fun. I wonder how much we do at Christmas time and how meaningful Christmas is to us that has more to do with fun than the practical reality of God sending Jesus to visit us, to become our Savior. I invite you this morning to a very practical passage of Scripture. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's not very fun, but it's practical. And I want you to see this morning some practical teaching that should impact the way we live our daily lives That in the end of our message today, I want to show you how it has everything to do with Christmas. Much of what we do in the Christmas season and in our Christian Christmas traditions are generated, if you stop and think about it, more by department stores than by Scripture. And the things that give us the warm and fuzzies about Christmas often have a lot more to do with nothingness than they do with the centrality of Christ in the Christmas story. I always really enjoy doing a big Scrooge message the first Sunday in December. Um, There's certain things about Christmas that I can hardly stand. 
but I'm going to spare you. And I'm just going to be a fun guy. Christmas is just about fun, isn't it? Let's be practical as we study God's Word. Let's be sensitive to apply the Scripture to our daily living. And then with alertness, at the end of our message today, I want you to understand how all of this is couched in the reality of Christmas. The Apostle Paul is giving specific instruction to Timothy. We know that. We've been studying this book for some months. The church is Ephesus. The pastor is Timothy. The overseeing elder apostle giving instruction is the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that we can surmise as we read and study the Word is that the things that the Apostle Paul is addressing in the book, the things that he is addressing, are to touch on things that evidently were a problem in the church. For example, all of the detail about qualified spiritual leadership. They evidently did not have it and were not practicing that, so he wanted to correct it. Hence, all of the detailed instruction. Today, we talk about another group of people that were present in the church. The Apostle Paul, if you've noticed in 1 Timothy, he's talked about men and women and spiritual leaders. Today, he's going to talk about a specific group of people And there is an application to us today, but I want you to understand, as we study together, uh, the first part of our message. And this um, this is some very practical instruction that the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy to teach the people on how to live together. And ultimately, it has everything to do with the Incarnation. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, Let all who are under a yoke... As bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." What an interesting group of people the Apostle Paul is addressing in the church. And in some ways, it's difficult for us to relate to this group of people. But as the Apostle Paul breaks down this instruction, the first thing I want you to see, that present in the church at Ephesus, number one, was social disparity. Social disparity. Notice the group that he's addressing in the church. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. You know what a yoke is, right? You can picture that big timber that's hewn out in the old days and the, and the, the neck yoke is shaped in of this huge timber and they put oxen under it. This neck yoke. And it's designed to, to attach the chains and the traces and whatever to the double tree and, and hook up the load-bearing equipment so that the oxen can lean into the yoke. The yoke does what? It restricts them. It contains them. They are under the control of the master when they're in the yoke. What the Apostle Paul and who the Apostle Paul is talking about is the presence of slaves in the church. There were present in the first century church people who were free people and people who were under the yoke of slavery or bondage to others in the church and outside of the church. It's an interesting word that's used in the Greek here. In fact, it's a word that the Apostle Paul often used about himself. In the Greek, it's a word that you might have heard about before. It's pronounced doulos. 
It's translated in the ESV, bondservant. The idea is that it's somebody who is not free in and of themselves. They belong to someone else. They are, as it were, the property of someone else. They are accountable to a master. They are obligated to that master because he owns them. It's interesting to think about how the Apostle Paul used this in regards to himself in light of his relationship with Christ. He often introduced himself as he wrote a letter, I, Paul, the doulos of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means I'm not a free man. It means that I am obligated to my master, Jesus. It means that what I do is what he wants. It means that my greatest joy is to bring a smile to my master. I'm just the servant. I'm the slave. I'm the doulos. The word doulos has often been translated in the English Bible, servant. And in some ways, that softens it. A servant, in some ways, can be somebody who's employed Uh, For employment, the word really is slave. It's somebody who has no rights of their own. I have yielded over my rights. That's how the Apostle Paul used it in relationship to Christ. I am a doulos for Jesus Christ. Present in the church was this social disparity. And you need to understand that in first century Rome, when this was written, that slavery was so embedded in the culture for so long that people didn't even think in terms of, of a problem with it. It was something that was absolutely socially acceptable. It was something that was embedded in the culture. In fact, the whole economic machinery of Rome would have fallen apart if there weren't if there wasn't present this system of slavery. You need to understand that it's a little bit different than the way we think of our American-African colonial history up through the Civil War of American slavery, in that in Rome, it wasn't a racial-based thing at all. You could not identify slaves according to race. In fact, to help us understand, I'm going to I'm going to take a little risk and just read to you from a book by John MacArthur. Dr. John MacArthur has written an excellent book. It's not been released all that long, maybe a year or so now. And it's entitled, Slave, the Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. And in here, he has a few paragraphs describing, and I thought it would be more helpful for me to just to read it than to explain to you. Um, this is a subject that is interesting as far as what slavery was like, and, and there's been study done. Listen as... Dr. MacArthur describes the atmosphere that would have been present in Ephesus when Paul wrote Timothy about the slaves in the church. Slavery was a pervasive social structure in the first century Roman Empire. In fact, it was so commonplace that its existence as an institution was never seriously questioned by anyone. Slaves of all ages, genders, and ethnicities constituted an important socioeconomic class in ancient Rome. Roughly one-fifth of the empire's population were slaves, totaling as many as 12 million at the outset of the first century A.D. Not surprisingly, the entire Roman economy was highly dependent on this sizable pool of both skilled and unskilled labor. Initially, the Roman slave population came through military conquest. So as Rome spread its power and ownership of the world, uh, the known world of the day, they brought people back as slaves. They kept entire other nations as uh, slave nations. As the empire expanded its borders, it captured huge numbers of people who were subsequently sold into bondage. 
But by the first century, the majority of slaves inherited their place in society by being born into slavery. Most slaves then had never known freedom. So here we are. Christ comes along. The apostles are now preaching and planting churches. One-fifth of the population are people who are slaves, most of which at this point in history have been born from a lineage of bondage and slavery. He goes on to say that for many slaves, of course, life was difficult, especially for those who worked in the mines or on farms. These rustic slaves often lived far away from their city-dwelling owners under the supervision of a foreman or a manager. But there were also many slaves who lived in the cities, working alongside their masters as part of the household. For these urban slaves, life was often considerably easier. Depending on their training and on their master's needs, slaves functioned in numerous capacities, both inside and outside the home. From teachers to cooks to shopkeepers to doctors, slaves were involved in a wide variety of occupation. And from a glance on the street, it would have been difficult to distinguish between slaves and non-slaves. There was essentially no difference in dress, neither were there significant differences in responsibilities. Any line of work a free person might do, a slave might also do. He goes on to give further explanation, but that gives you an idea of the cultural climate and the society in Rome. So when you were on the street, one thing you knew is that about one out of every five people was literally owned by someone else. As the church takes root and the gospel begins to impact lives and people follow Christ and become born again and the church grows, guess what's happening in the church? We gather at church on Sunday, and as difficult as it is for us to believe, there were people who were present who were free people, and there were people who were slaves who would belong to other people, and there were even people who would come to church with their slaves. Others were slaves who had heard the gospel preached, had been born again, and their master let them come and worship. And they had the freedom to come and go. And so the Apostle Paul needs to address the dynamic of the interaction between the masters and the slaves. So, number one, there was a social disparity. But I want you to see that now Paul is going to emphasize a spiritual priority. A spiritual priority. Look what he says. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, these doulos, slaves, let them regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Notice that the next phrase in verse 2 addresses those who have believing masters. And so I take it that his first approach here is to speak directly through Timothy to those in the church for him to instruct those slaves in the church who were owned by unbelieving masters and that they had a spiritual priority. And their spiritual priority was twofold. Number one, it was to honor their master. And number two, it was to protect the gospel. Notice what he says. You slaves, under the yoke of bondage, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching, that is the teachings of Christ, may not be reviled. Slaves, your attitude when you get up in the morning and you go to work for your master. You need to be careful to honor him with the right attitude. You need to esteem him and show him respect. And you need to work in such a way that with your work ethic, nothing is done in your life or in your attitude that is disparaging to the gospel. 
The Apostle Paul was concerned that Timothy teach the believing slaves that as they went out into the culture and into the society and as they worked for their masters, that they would in no way bring shame to the gospel because they had a bad attitude. It's convicting, isn't it? The third thing I want you to see in here is that in the church also was a dynamic of mutual identity. A mutual identity. Notice what we see next. Those who have believing masters, verse 2, must not be disrespectful on the ground, here it is, that they are brothers. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? You come to church on Sunday morning, and we know that there are people who are born again who are masters, and there are people who are born again who are slaves. There are people who own other people, and there are people who are owned by other people. But when they come to church and they enter in to the reality of their salvation in Christ, look what he says. There is a mutual identity in Christ, and you are brothers. And so he has a word to them. What about believers, believing slaves who are owned by believing masters? He said, listen, you need to keep in mind that you do not want to defraud your brother in any way. Look what he says. Do not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The Apostle Paul taught already, and they knew the teaching, like from Galatians chapter 6, verse, verse 23 and through 26 in there, 26, 27 in there. said, in the gospel, we are all equal. Remember that passage in Galatians 6 where the Apostle Paul said, in Christ there's neither slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. And Christ is one. And so you can imagine that it's creating some tension in the church. This guy is the property of some other guy, a master. They both come to church and they sit down and the master thinks a minute and he bumps this guy next to him and it's his slave and his doulas and he says... Hey, I left my coat out in the chariot. Run out and get it. No, you go get your own coat. We're in church, man. We're equal here. You can't boss me around here. We're in Christ. I don't know if it worked that way exactly, but you can only imagine the thoughts that were going on. The gospel is the great equalizer, isn't it? What a beautiful thing it is. There is a question that rises right about now in the message, and it is, I wonder why the New Testament is so, seems so silent against the evil of slavery. Don't you think this would have been a perfect spot for the Apostle Paul to say, okay, and I want you to let all of them go free, give them their freedom. I don't know that I know exactly why the New Testament doesn't address that issue a little bit more pointedly. I think a couple thoughts about it, though, and it's worthy of more research and more clear understanding. But a couple thoughts are, number one, found right here in this passage, that those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. I think we have a clue right there in the fact that the gospel itself clearly destroys the foundations upon which slavery exists, and that is that I have a right over you. That my strength can dominate you. When it comes to the gospel, there is no such mindset. There is no such thought. And so the gospel itself, in the essence of the gospel, destroys all of the foundations upon which slavery is based. I think it's important to recognize, too, that uh, not only does the gospel innately destroy the reality of a slave-master relationship, and it equalizes, but secondly, I think you need to recognize that in our New Testament... 
the, the, the apostolic authors and the writers of our New Testament never encouraged societal uprising. In fact, they did just the opposite. They taught us to submit to those who have the leadership over us. They taught the followers in the first century church that those governing authorities over them were appointed by God and you are to show respect to them, honor them, and submit to them. And so the New Testament is not a radical book promoting some kind of street scene societal reform where there's going to be an uprising. That is never the tone of the New Testament. And I think part of that is, thirdly, that in the context of this culture, one of the things that we know is that this was not a democracy, this was not a republic, this was not a representative form of government. The citizen, in essence, did not think of themselves as being the government by the people for the people at all. These were a people who were dominated by Nero's. These are a people who were dominated in a dictatorial fashion. The throne had all the power. You didn't think in terms on the street of my role of bringing about societal uh, change. In this culture, in this society, go ahead and get a sign and start picketing Caesar. You get your head whacked off so fast, it's not funny. I mean, I guess it's never funny to get your head whacked off, but it's really not funny when you're trying to hold up a sign and say, Christians, be free. Christians, bring change. Whack. That is never the kind of change that is promoted in the New Testament. Those are just a few thoughts that came to me, and I think it is, as I said, worthy of further study and meditation and thought, investigation. The Apostle Paul, believe it or not, was often in prison, as he was when he wrote 1 Timothy. He himself was in prison, always unjustly suffering injustice in corrupt systems, and he never gives a peep about how to change society by changing their laws. He always promoted the change in this world by a pure church, by a godly church, by loving Christ, that as we are doulos of the king, servants of the king of king, that people would look at us and say, what's wrong with those people? Something really different about them. And ultimately, it would be a very beautiful attraction. And that the love and the humility of the body of Christ would be simply aesthetically beautiful to a corrupt culture. There's a challenge there. So we have this idea that that there was a social disparity in the church. The Apostle Paul addresses the fact for spiritual priorities, you need to honor and respect your boss and your master. You need to protect the gospel with your work ethic. That there is a mutual identity that was creating some tension in the church, the fact that masters and slaves were brothers in Christ. But notice his specific instruction to those believing masters and believing slaves that evidently worship together right there in the, in the church at Ephesus. Let's finish verse 2. He says, Do not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. In other words, you don't, you don't take lightly the fact that he's your master just because you're a brother in Christ. And rather, you must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. He's speaking now, number four, of a loyal community. A loyal community. His challenge to those who have people with authority over them is that their Christian testimony should be such that they never take them for granted because it's their brother or sister in Christ, but that they view it this way. 
They're sitting in church. The master says to the servant, slave, doulos, I forgot my coat out in the chariot. Can you run and get it? It would not occur to him to say, you go get it yourself. It would be instead, absolutely, it would be my joy as my brother in Christ to honor and serve you. I love you. Of course, I'll go get your coat. You see how it changes it from an obligatory, mandated request to one where you're not in control of me. It's my joy to go get your coat and bring it to you. In fact, he even wants them to work in such a way that it would only elevate their master, that he would be so thankful that he has Christian slaves because the Christian slaves produce so much more because they care about their boss. They don't take advantage of him because he's a believer, but they honor him because he's a believer and they only want his elevation because he's their brother or sister in Christ. And so what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in application for today, number five, is a vocational Christianity. It's a vocational Christianity. Think about it. Where is it that we find ourselves closest reflecting this kind of a relationship? All of us here at some level have people who own us. All of us at some level have people who say, you do this, you do this, then go sweep that up and you do it. Because they have authority over you at some level as it works its way up. And so this idea is that Christians ought to be identifiable in the workplace Because those who hold the authority over them are honored and respected by the believers and the work ethic of the believers speaks so well. Where else do you spend that much time, for one thing? We spend more time at work than really any other place, don't we? And so this really matters. I also think that the workplace is our primary source of contact with the unsaved world. Wouldn't you agree with that? If there's ever a place where we have contact with non-believers on a regular basis, it's the workplace. So why wouldn't the workplace be of vital importance in the mind of the Apostle Paul to be taught to the churches that those with authority over them in their workplace show Christ? So valuable. How many of you, how many of you work for an unsaved boss and you have unsaved people around you? Raise your hand. Hands up all over the place, right? Now, how many of you, perchance, work for a believing boss? A believer boss, okay? What a privilege. What a privilege. And I think that it's very important that the, that the work ethic of the believing Christian, whether the boss is saved or unsaved, that your work ethic and that your attitude and your words reflect the fact that, first and foremost, you are a doulos for Jesus, I think that more than any other place, the workplace exposes our character for what we really are. How many of you would raise your hand and say, the people at my workplace know that I'm a Christian? Raise your hand. You have a testimony. People hear you talk. People know that you're a Christian. And so then Monday morning when you come in mumbling about the boss and mumbling about how much you hate your job and mumbling about the responsibilities you have, what does that say about Jesus? What does that say about the attractiveness of the gospel? What does that say about the transformed life that you're living? You're just like everybody else. Stinking job, stinking boss. Just wish I could go hunting this week, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean that you're not human and you wouldn't sit around at lunchtime and 
think you'd really like to be up in the woods or whatever hunting instead of being at work. But I'm talking about that attitude. I'm talking about what you're known for. This was of great concern to the Apostle Paul. And I want you to take just a minute, and it will only take a minute, and then we will wrap up by applying this and recognizing how couched in the Christmas story is the reality of this truth and how we are to be a doulos with grace and with, with a contentment. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And the Apostle Paul had addressed this to the very church that he's addressing through Timothy 20 years later, some 20 years later, 20 years before he had written a letter directly to the Ephesian church. And this is what he wrote to him about this topic in Ephesians chapter 6. And I would encourage you to make note of these verses and to read them, especially if you are particularly struggling with your attitude towards your job or your boss. I would really challenge you to write down these references and you spend some time this week meditating through these passages. I think that you'll find them very helpful. Ephesians chapter 6, notice, um, beginning with verse 5. Here's our word again. Bondservants, slaves, doulos, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Look at this. As you would Christ... Not by the way of eye service as people pleaser. Oh, you know what that one is. That's like, hey man, I'm really shoveling coal. And here comes the, hey boss, yeah man, I'm really working, I'm really working. And then the boss, the boss is gone. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll pick it up in a little bit here. I got to breathe. When the boss is watching, is your, work, is your work ethic, your attitude, your behavior, one thing compared to when the boss isn't watching? That's what he's talking about there. He's saying, Not by way of eye service, so that when they're watching you, that you're a people pleaser, but as a doulos of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Do you know what the will of God for your life is? The will of God for your life is to go home and rest so that you can wake up and go to work tomorrow morning. That's the will of God, is for you to go to work tomorrow with a good attitude. And to to not do so is literally to sin against our Master Jesus. Because look what he says... Doing the will of God from the heart, verse 7, Ephesians 6. Rendering service with a good will, a good attitude as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with Christ. You see how it's de- Christianity destroys slavery. Masters, step, quit throwing your weight around. Treat them with respect. They're your brothers in Christ and you are all under the watchful eye of your master, Jesus Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. And notice what he says here in verses 22 through 25. Verses 22 to 25. Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Here's our word again. Bond servants. Doulos. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Do you think that it's possible that in this level of corrupt society and oppression in the early church, that when a, when a master who was non-believing knew that he had a, a slave, a doulos, who was a believer, that he might give him the worst jobs on the list? Absolutely. And Paul says, do whatever they ask you. Colossians 3 Verse 22, do whatever they ask you 
and obey your earthly masters, not by the way, again, of eye service as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Here's a great verse, 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that the Lord, that it's from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, not Christ. Listen, that ought to change your attitude. That ought to make it a total different perspective. That when I go to work in the morning, I am serving the Lord Christ. He is my master. I am his doulos. He's only giving me instruction through a chain of command with this boss I have. I want you to know that I know that this is easy to talk about and difficult to do. Especially if you're in a situation where you're, you're not appreciated by your boss. Time and... Tasks are being abused by others and you're getting the short end of the stick. There's an inequity at some level for whatever reason at your workplace. He said, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. One more, Titus chapter nine, 2, Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. First and 2 Timothy, Titus. Look at this. And then we'll wrap up. Notice Titus chapter 2, beginning with verses nine, verse 9, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants, there's our word again, you doulos, you servants, you slaves, are to be submissive to their own masters, here it is again, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. When your boss thinks about you, when the people who have authority over you think of you, it should break a smile out on their face. It's like, that is a good guy, that is a good girl, man, that is a great lady, that is a great man. They never hassle me. Look at what else he says. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Verse 10, not pilfering. I love the way the ESV, not pilfering. Yeah, you know that little roll of electrical tape you bring home from work and the gloves you bring home from work? Oh, it's all right. They got a ton of it in the locker room, in the box there. Don't pilfer off your boss. He owns it. I think it's important not to pilfer time off your boss too, doing your Facebook and and your emailing on your personal life. Don't pilfer off your boss. Believers in the Lord Christ need to have a work ethic that is a reflection of the fact that first and foremost, I am a due loss of Jesus Christ and everything I do is to bring a, a positive reflection upon my master. And you're not going to look at me And in any way will the gospel be disparaged because of my work ethic. Finish the verse. He said, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. I am absolutely trustworthy and reliable so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Listen, it's as though you are dressed, you are adorned, you are wearing the gospel of your Savior, Jesus Christ, in the workplace, and you want everybody to say, what a good-looking guy. There is this aesthetic beauty of the gospel as it lives itself out through your life. Where does that come from? It does not come from the flesh. It does not come from the natural man. It only comes from from our Lord Jesus Christ, who modeled for us what it was to be a doulos. Philippians chapter 2. Listen as I read Philippians chapter 2 in conclusion. Here's how Christmas fits into the equation. Number six on our message is the essential humility. 
the essential humility demanded and required to live out these truths. You have a master over you. You're a doulos. And you need to humble yourself in their presence. You need the power of Christ to do that. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. The unity that we have in Christ should be noticeable, palpable. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see how the essence of Christianity undermines the essence of slavery? How can a master very long esteem his slave better than himself and maintain ownership over him? Can't happen. How can a slave undermine his master if he's esteeming him better than himself? Verse 4, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm not worried first and foremost about me, but your interest is my business. Making you look good is my business. But also to the interest of others. Now have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours, how? In Christ Jesus. How are you going to have this selflessness? How are you going to have this aesthetically beautiful humility that is being lived out in your life only in Christ? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of, here's our word again, Servant, a doulos. You, you understand what we're talking about here? God gives Jesus the elbow. Now's the time. My sovereign plan of redemption is kicking into another gear. Time for you to go. And Jesus looks up and he is equal with the Father in essence. And he looks at the Father and he says, No, you don't understand. Not today. Not today, I'm not doing wombs. And I'm not doing barns and mangers, and I'm not doing shepherds and wise men and that drum that keeps pounding. I'm not doing that. That drummer boy, he's got to go. I'm not doing that. And I'm not doing crosses. No, what did it say he did? God gives him the elbow and says, Today, according to the Scripture... And according to God's sovereign plan of the ages, this is the right time now for you to enter humanity. And it says that he humbled himself and became a doulos to the Father. And then he goes on to say, being found in human form. Well, here, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a doulos, being born in the likeness of men. Can you say Christmas? Being born in the likeness of men. There it is. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's Christmas, my friend. 
And there's our model of a doulos. And Jesus came and he washed feet and he taught us that the greatness of his kingdom had to do with serving others and the transformation of our mindset and our worldly heart and our pride and our arrogance and our self our self-promotion and our defense of our rights. It's out the window at Christmas and we become, we become a doulas patterned after the doulas who showed us how to do it. Do you know this doulas? Are you a doulas of the doulas? Are you a slave of Jesus who became a slave to the will of the Father to model for us what it meant to esteem others higher than himself. For us, what he did was so incredible, wasn't it? That he, who was equal to God, would go to the cross and take our sin upon himself so that we could go to the cross and put our sin upon him by faith, believing that he accomplished his substitutionary work. He paid the price once and for all. And he that has the son has life, and he that has not does not have the son does not have life. Do you have that life? Do you know what it is to admit your sinfulness before a holy God and acknowledge that what Jesus Christ did was for you? You've entered into this great salvation. I can't explain it all, but I believe it's true. I trust that this Christmas you'll be very careful to not let department stores overwhelm you with their agenda. Do not run up credit card debt. Do not worry about sending me a Christmas card. I'm not sending you one. (laughs) I love you all. I will answer my phone in the middle of the night if you need me. You know that. I'm not sending you a Christmas card. (laughs) I'm not down on them. If you send me a Christmas card, I will appreciate it. But don't do it by stressing out. Find time to sit still. Find time to sit still and find a manger scene and meditate about that baby in a manger and how he put on flesh and became a doulos. And let's keep Christmas real. So, Father, we look to you for our strength and we recognize how the world presses itself upon us and how easily we are duped And how excited we get about a big fat guy in a red suit. And presents and cake and cookies and snow and front teeth. And so, Lord, forgive us for being so bored with Jesus and bored with the story and careless about living out Christ so that we are adorned with this beautiful servant robe and recognize the high calling of being a doulos for Jesus. Would you enable us to do this, Lord? It's outside of our own power. We can't do it. We're not capable, but we can do all things through you who gives us strength. And Father, help us to have our eyes watching for your second coming. We believe in your first coming and the manger, and it was so literal, and we believe your second coming will be as well. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your great plan of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.